ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. In 2018, Dr Kylie Moore-Gilbert was pulled from a queue at Tehran Airport. Kylie was arrested by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard and charged with being an Israeli spy. Kylie was, in fact, an Australian academic specialising in Middle East studies, and she'd been invited to come to Iran for an academic conference. She was put in a tiny, dank cell in the political prisoner wing of Tehran's Evan Prison, and she was told by her interrogators that unless she cooperated, they would throw her into a hole where nobody would find her. In the end, Kylie was held in detention for two years and three months. Some of the soulmates thrown in with her were informants, but there were other women there who Kylie came to love and cherish as they held on to each other for dear life. Contact with the outside world was very sporadic, and the Revolutionary Guard officer in charge of her case took a sinister interest in Kylie that complicated every aspect of her life inside. Kylie's memoir of her time inside the paranoid heart of the Iranian state's penal system is called The Uncaged Sky. Hi, Kylie. Hi, Richard. Tell me about the conference that brought you to Iran in 2018 and whether you had any mixed feelings about going there. I was actually invited by an Iranian university to come to attend this seminar that was happening part in the capital Tehran and part in the, I guess, religious capital, Khom. I didn't really have too many reservations about going. I actually consulted a few other academics here in Australia at various universities prior and said, hey, I've heard you've been to Iran before. Did you ever get into a sticky situation? Did anything happen to you? Is it safe? And they said, no, it's a fantastic country. You should go. We had a great time. One of the world's great civilizations. Why wouldn't you want to go to Iran? Exactly. I've I've sort of had an interest in seeing some of that amazing history for a number of years now. Um, Persepolis, you know, the, the Persian Empire. It's it's a beautiful country. And I thought I would be going only for two and a half weeks. So I jumped at the opportunity, really. So this is your field of study. You could speak Arabic. You could speak Hebrew from a time you lived in Israel while living on a kibbutz. Did you have any Farsi? Did you have any Persian language when you got there? Not at all. I've never studied Persian. And I actually never studied Iran either. I wrote my PhD on the Arab Gulf states and um, was never an Iran expert or anything like that. So I came there with no Farsi. Um, But luckily, due to having studied Arabic, I could read the script at least. Was the conference sort of more or less uneventful? Yeah, it was fun, actually. I met um, some great colleagues from European universities, largely, and um, some wonderful Iranian hosts as well. And we, we had a great time. So when was the first flicker of worry that something wasn't quite right? I had arranged in advance via an Iranian academic contact a meeting with the Iranian foreign ministry to discuss their policy toward the Arab Gulf states. Everything was above board and approved in advance of my arrival in Iran and they knew I was an academic and everything had been approved. So I arrived at the foreign ministry and was allowed in the front entrance and was sitting in the foyer when somebody came out and informed me that the meeting had been cancelled and... From their behaviour, I sensed that something wasn't quite right. This was the day before I was due to take my my flight back to Australia. Following that, I went back to my hotel and the receptionist at my hotel, who I'd been friendly with and he'd been practising his English with me, you know, for a couple of days prior, he came up to me and pulled me aside and said, hey, Kylie, I shouldn't tell you this, but some men were here asking about you. And I said, which men? And he said, they're very bad people, but he wouldn't tell me who they were. And when I became visibly agitated by that news, he then tried to minimise and said, oh, you know, it's probably just the tourist police or something. Don't worry, you know, go back to... Tourist police? Yeah, I mean, I'd never heard of a tourist police. I don't think such a police exists in Iran. I think it was just a, you know, he'd been worried perhaps that he'd stepped too far um, in telling me and then sort of tried to pull back and make out that nothing was actually the matter after all. So what happened when you got to the airport to get your flight home? I checked in and got my boarding pass, put my bags on the carousel and everything and walked in the direction of passport control. 
And I was actually quite relieved at that point to be leaving. I had a bad feeling that 24 hours before getting my flight. And so I thought, okay, it's good. I'm leaving the country now. Something isn't right. But that was the moment as I was about to queue for passport control that some plain clothes, black clad men approached me, uh, didn't identify themselves and asked me if I'm Kylie Moore Gilbert. And I said, yes. And they led me away to an airport interrogation room. They they didn't really speak English. There was one guy appointed as the interpreter, but his English was pretty rusty as well. So it was difficult for me to understand what was going on at that point. Now, these were members of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, which yes. are a bit like a state within a state. What can you tell me about the Revolutionary Guard? The Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps are, as you said, a state within a state. They pull the levers of power within the Iranian regime. The Revolutionary Guard Corps answer directly to the supreme leader of Iran, the, the dictator of the country. They are radical Islamist. They are responsible for maintaining the regime's grip on power by any means. And they have a quite formidable military force, navy, air force, ground troops. They have their own air force and navy? And- yes, parallel to the official Iranian Air Force, Navy and and Army as well. So there are two competing military forces in Iran, the official army and the Revolutionary Guard. So that's where the real power of the state lies. In both those institutions, historically they tended to attract a certain kind of person, either a fanatical ideologue or cynics, psychopaths, sneaks, mediocrities. Is that the kind of person that the Islamic Revolutionary Guard tends to attract as well? Yes, and I would add to that absolutely brainwashed as well, brainwashed in extreme Islamist ideology and the revolutionary ideology of Ayatollah Khomeini from a very, very young age and not particularly educated about anything else other than religion. And largely, I think most of their supporters and the lower sort of cadre of of Rev Guards come from quite poor, a lot of them regional parts of Iran or the poorer suburban enclaves of Tehran or some of the other big cities. So when they brought you into a room, what kind of questions did they fire at you? This initial interrogation that it took, I don't even know how many hours, quite a few hours. um, I was in quite a distressed state of mind at that point. So the time sort of didn't flow in a particularly coherent fashion. But um, I was held in this interrogation room for a few hours. I'd missed my flight at that point. And they asked all manner of different questions. I think it was a fishing expedition at that point. They hadn't really decided whether I was guilty of something or not, I think. And they wanted to sort of shake me down and and get some info and figure out if I was worth pursuing or not. As you say, your flight came and went, and then they took you to a hotel where they kept you for a week. At that point, they were pretty interested in the idea whether you might be an Israeli spy. Now, what, what gave them that idea? I mean, you'd spent time in Israel, in a kibbutz, a lot of people spend time in Israel living, living on a kibbutz. Why did they think you were an Israeli spy? They didn't accuse me of being an Israeli spy at this point. I think they weren't sure. Even they didn't accuse me of being a spy. They were floating all sorts of wild and crazy theories. And again, there was a lot of talk in Farsi that I didn't understand. I only had the appointed interpreter as the conduit for knowing anything about what these guys were thinking at that point. And right, so this is quite mysterious, this process still at this point. Yeah, I was very, I didn't know it was the Revolutionary Guard Corps who had arrested me. They hadn't identified themselves. None of them wore a uniform, any insignia, nothing. So I thought either this is the security services of Iran, it's the Rev Guards, it's some sort of criminal or other gang or mafia gang or something. I had no idea who these people were. There was nothing official about the process. They had taken me to a hotel. It wasn't an official detention facility. Um, I was basically locked in the room. I later learned there was CCTV and, and voice recorders in that hotel room wasn't allowed to leave the building. And so I had no, you know, it didn't seem to be to me to be the behaviour of the regular security services. So I had no idea what was going on, actually. It was very um, distressing. The lead interrogator was a man who called himself Kazi Zadeh, which was not his real name. Describe what he was like. He tried to paint himself as a good cop character. There were two competing factions of the Revolutionary Guard during this one week I spent in the hotel. Both of them, I came to understand, had differing desires about what to do with me. One faction wanted to immediately throw me in prison and interrogate me and put me through the the legal judicial system. 
the other faction headed by Kasi Zadeh wanted to recruit me as a spy from the very beginning and they wanted to keep me out of prison. And I think initially they had the upper hand and that's why I ended up in the hotel for that week. They wanted to keep me essentially imprisoned in a hotel, so in more comfortable conditions and persuade me perhaps by using carrots as well as sticks to agree to inform or or spy for the Revolutionary Guard Corps. Were they serious? Did they think you could somehow be a significant spy for them, really? I don't know whether they had me in mind as a (laughs) top-level James Bond 007 agent. I don't think so. They wouldn't have trusted me enough for that. But they are very savvy. And I met others that were recruited as spies or informers and sent abroad. I know of two others who were Iranian dual nationals of Western countries. They have a particular target in mind often. And if you live in that city or if you travel often to the country that they're interested in, they will tell you to keep doing that and ingratiate yourself with that particular target or person and feedback info without you necessarily having any high level knowledge of what they're up to or why they're interested in that info. That's what I thought that they were after from my conversations with Ghazi Zadeh in that early phase. They were particularly interested in British universities. They'd named a couple of them to me. Did I know anyone from those universities? Could I potentially attend conferences there? I don't know who their targets were at the universities, but, you know, this is how they operate. And I think they've had success with it in the past. They kept at me for this recruitment issue years into my arrest and waved it before me as a potential way of getting out of prison. And um, What was to stop you from saying, sure, I'll be a spy and then come back home and go, up yours, buddy? Oh, that's exactly what it occurred to me instantly. And I actually said this to them. This was in a meeting that we had about it more than a year after my arrest. And I said, why wouldn't I just run away as soon as I get back to Australia and tell you to piss off? And they said, we have operatives in Australia and if you do that, we'll kill you. Do you think that's true? They definitely have operatives in Australia. Whether or not they'd be able to assassinate a citizen of Australia on Australian soil, I'm sceptical. But that was enough for me to tell them to, in very unpolite terms, where to go. (laughs) So then after a week in the hotel, they threw you in Evan Prison, in the 2A wing of that prison. What was special about that wing of Evan Prison? So Evan Prison is run by the Iranian Prison Authority. It's a government institution. It's a very large prison, famous for political dissidents, but most of the prisoners there are actually just regular criminals, largely men. There's only one small women's ward there. But the 2A unit and another unit called 209 are run by separate entities to the prison authority, and they're kind of a prison within a prison. In 2A, the Revolutionary Guards are in control, no inspector from the prison authorities allowed in and they can do whatever they like. So you're in a prison within a prison. Yes. Being interrogated by a state within a state. Yes. Well, it's a very deep hole to be down. When they brought you to your cell, what was that cell like? I didn't realise I was in my cell. I had been blindfolded when I was brought into the women's unit of 2A and they had given me the prison uniform, put it in my hands chucked me into this tiny little box of a room and closed the door. So I thought I was in the change room for putting on the prison uniform and that after I'd worn those clothes, they'd take me out and take me to the real cell. (laughs) It was that small. I mean, it was a two and a half by two and a half metre squared box. Two and a half by two and a half metres? Yes. Could you stand all the way up in it? I could stand up, but if I lay on the floor and stretched my arms and legs out, I'd be touching the walls on either side. Was there a window? No, there, there had been a window. They'd boarded it up with a piece of sheet metal. What state were you in at that point? I was very distressed. They had lied to me consistently in the hotel. They were telling me, OK, you answer all of our questions. We'll put you on a flight in the coming few days and send you back to Australia. I didn't quite believe it, particularly toward the end of that week, I had a very sinking feeling in my gut telling me everything was going pear-shaped and I was in deep trouble. But I was also really mentally not there. I was really distressed and, and anxious and I just kept sort of telling myself, clinging to that belief that they would do what they said they were going to do and send me home. So they lied to me right up until the moment they put me in the car and, and transferred me to prison. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know I was in Evan Prison. 
I just had no idea what was happening. And I was crying, I was upset, I was really distressed. Could you sense what time of day it was? In the cell, no. Uh, you knew the time of day from the routine. After a while, once you came to, to know the routine of the prison, especially the meals they would serve you three times a day, then you could guess roughly the time of day. Could you hear birdsong? I could. The particular solitary confinement cell I was in was on the external wall of the women's unit, thankfully. I was only in there for a month and then I was transferred away from the external wall so I didn't hear birds from then on. But in that first month, there were birds chirping outside my window at dawn, which also became a sign to me that day had broke. You're being brought in for regular interrogations within the prison. Tell me about the plan they had for you to lure your then-husband, who was a Russian-Israeli, Russian-born Israeli, now living in Australia, into their web, if you like. So the faction that won out in the end was the initial faction that wanted to imprison me straight away. So not Kazi Zadeh's faction. He disappeared throughout the interrogation phase. And so the guys who wanted to recruit me, they lost. The guys who wanted to imprison me and interrogate me in a more aggressive fashion, they won. And their plan was this utterly crazy idea, which never would have worked, of using me to lure my Russian-Israeli ex-husband to Iran by telling me, call him, tell him to come to Iran, tell him to come to Kish Island, which is a sort of an economic free zone near Dubai, near the Gulf states. And if he comes and lets us speak to him and answer our questions, then we'll let you go, which is complete, like, I I don't know, there's no way in in a million years my ex-husband would have believed that. And I didn't believe it either. And, it, you know, it was just a crazy idea. But it was an opportunity for me to call someone, for me to call my ex-husband. The first phone call and contact I'd really been allowed with my family. So it was an opportunity that I took up, even though I knew it would never happen. So they wanted you to call your ex-husband and put this idea to him. Yes. And did you do that? And in what tone of voice could you could you do that? I mean, in? I did it. Yeah. Um, I knew he would never agree. And he... I think, had the strategy of not saying yes or no. And he kept saying, I'll think about it, I'll think about it, whatever, so that I would keep calling. So I had multiple calls to him over a few weeks. And, I, you know, it was clear to me that he wasn't going to come, but it was an opportunity to keep up that phone connection and that contact. But in the end, I just said to him, don't come, it's a trap. And then that was my final call with him. Were you able to speak with your parents at this time? Not at that very initial time. But after a few months, they started to allow me to have family phone calls and I called my parents for the first time. Did they have any idea of what had happened to you? By that stage, I think they did. Several months into my incarceration, obviously after calling my ex-husband, they knew that I had been detained somewhere, even though I wasn't allowed to say where or what was going on or that I was in prison. And I presume by that point the government had figured it out too and had notified my family. You ended up spending quite a bit of time in solitary confinement. What are some of the kind of mental exercises you devised to stay sane? I was able, after a couple of weeks in this extreme solitary confinement, cell that you're locked in for 23 hours a day with sort of no natural light, no furniture, no bedding, absolutely nothing to entertain your mind, After two weeks or so, I started to develop somehow coping mechanisms for dealing with the mental torment of having nothing to do but wallow in your um, regrets and be full of fear and worry for the future too. I managed to slow down some of those mental processes and some of that anguish. The key really was to focus on the present and blot out the past and the future the sort of internal recrimations over how you got to that point of being in that cell. So to try and not engage with any of that, just live for the present, live in the moment, you become very reliant on the prison routine and you structure your whole day around these sort of micro-incremental routines that occur in the unit, a lot of them around food, around half an hour in the morning and half an hour in the evening that I was allowed outside for quote-unquote fresh air. Basically, it involved pacing up and down an external balcony and attached to the unit, occasionally taken for a shower, 
occasionally being able to go to the bathroom, this kind of thing became really key in sort of segmenting the day into such small portions that I would just be waiting for the next part of the routine to occur and trying not to think about anything beyond that. Did childhood memories come back? Yes. After the first couple of weeks of just extreme mental torment, it's, it's, it's psychological torture actually, I started to slowly inhabit my childhood memories, drift in and out of really, really long-term recollections that I wasn't even aware that I'd retained, you know, stuff from early days of primary school. And exploring those memories, particularly places and geographies, closing my eyes, lying down on the floor, imagining I'm walking the halls of my primary school, that would pass the time, you know, and, and suddenly I'd realise that a couple of hours have passed. Yeah, did you marvel at that? Because, I mean, we all have this palace of memories in our head. And I suppose that's the, the trick you're talking about is learning how to inhabit that palace in a way that's not bound up with regret and terror and recrimination. Yeah, I think this is a skill I didn't realise I had. And I would estimate from talking with other prisoners, about 80% of people seem to be able to do there was that 20% that just never coped with solitary. And once I was moved out of that tiny cell into a slightly bigger one that had a, a little toilet attached and a Iranian TVs attached, you, you would hear the prisoners who weren't able to cope. You'd hear them bouncing off the walls and screaming and you'd hear people torturing themselves essentially. And some people just never coped and were never able to slow down their brain and their mental processes. But the majority did a similar thing to me after a week or two, managed to just slow everything down, block out their subconscious, their internal monologue, their hopes and dreams, their ambitions for the future, their regrets about the past and just existing in the present moment. Tell me how some women prisoners were able to make contact with you in your isolation? Two amazing and remarkable Iranian women, one of them called Nilufar, the other Hoda, they were in a cell across the hall from me when I was in that initial solitary confinement, two and a half by two and a half metre box. They spoke English, unlike the prison guards. They could hear me speaking English, attempting to communicate with the guards whenever the guards would open the door of my cell not understanding where I am, asking for help, crying, being distressed. They could hear all of that. They understood there's a foreigner here that doesn't speak Farsi. They could hear what I was saying and they understood it. And at great risk to themselves and to no personal benefit to themselves either, they decided to reach out to me. How did they do that? Initially, through one of the only shared spaces that we had in the 2A ward, which was that balcony I mentioned for getting fresh air, they would go out there together because they were in a cell together. And, you know, all the prisoners at certain points of the day would be taken out there. I would be obviously alone. And they used a, a pot plant on that balcony, which had quite a lot of green leaves, you know, so it had some, it was a spot to hide stuff, essentially. They were able to draw my attention to the pot plant. And in the middle of the, this plant, they'd hidden a small bag of fruits and nuts so they had been there for Nilufar for nine months at the, the point that I was admitted to the unit. And she had some privileges after that nine months and she had a few snacks and things that had been given to her by her interrogators. And she very generously shared some of that with me. I mean, I had nothing to eat really other than the horrific prison fare at that point and I couldn't keep most of it down in any way. You know, I was in such a, a bad state. So she had offered to share some of her fruits and nuts with me. And in the middle of this bag of nuts was a small balled up note written on toilet paper. And they didn't want to reveal to me that they had a secret pen because they didn't know if they could trust me. So they wrote it with a small square of chocolate with the sharp edge of a small square of chocolate. And it was a very brief note saying, we are Nilufar and Hoda, we're your friends, you're not alone. We love you, we're here for you. And P.S., this isn't poo, lol. <laughs> um, because, of course, it was brown and it was written on a piece of toilet paper. <laughs> and that just was revolutionary for me. You know, I, I thought, oh, my God, not only these people speak English, the first English communication I'd had in, you know, weeks and weeks in this facility, but I'm not alone. I'm not the only one here. I'm not the only one going through this. And they've given me this precious stash of fruits and nuts. So it was it was amazing. It, it had, it was, I was on a hire for 24 hours after receiving that note. 
What kind of communication system did you set up with these two amazing women? After a few communications via this pot plant, which was highly dangerous, we transitioned out of using that outdoor exercise area. It was monitored by CCTV. It was next to the guards' room, actually, uh, and it was quite dangerous to do anything in there. We exchanged a few more notes using another communal area, which was the communal laundry. We all had to wash by hand in a tub uh, prison uniforms from time to time, and that was another shared space that we were able to exchange notes. Initially, we used, again, a, a fairly risky and obvious method, but we perfected that after a couple of months to uh, rolling up a note very, very, you know, into a small uh, little kind of roll, I guess, and inserting it inside the hem of a pair of pants. And this pair of pants would rotate between our cells. There was actually three cells, my, mine and that of two others. And because the uniform was the same colour and of the same nature for all of us, the guards would think that we're taking our own pair of pants or having washed it, but actually this is the letter drop pair of pants with a hole in the seam that we were able to insert notes into. So that was one method. I was later shifted to the cell next door to Nilofar and Hodar and on certain guard shifts in the middle of the night we were able to speak through an air conditioning vent to each other as well. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. So you were telling me there about how these two amazing women... Nilofar and Hodak reached out to you, left you a message, left you a parcel of nuts and fruits and a little bit of chocolate as well. And this lovely, beautiful message. I mean, my God, what an act of kindness and courage and humour, all those things. Who were these women and why were they in that prison? Hodak was a lawyer who'd been arrested for women's rights advocacy. She had been teaching women entirely within the remit of Sharia law how to negotiate a marriage contract to give them equal rights to their prospective husband, which was entirely legal. But the Rev Guards didn't like the fact that they were doing that and they arrested her. So, she, so they didn't really need a law to arrest you then? They, they, oh they're no. operating quite extra-legally, in other words. There's a lot of really vague and ill-defined laws in Iran, like endangering the regime in some way. The common one is, is corruption on earth, which is a Sharia term that can mean anything and everything and carries the death penalty as the, its most harshest punishment. Or spreading propaganda against the regime, that's another common one. And how about Nilufar? What about her? Why, why was she there? Nilufar, unfortunately, is still in Evan prison even to this day. She was part of a group of environmental conservationists. Their entire NGO was folded and all of their, its staff were arrested and thrown in prison under charges of espionage and other security-related offences. They had been the premier advocates for the highly endangered big cat populations of Iran, as well as a number of other critically endangered species in Iran. And they had a breeding program for the cheetahs that was pretty successful. And the regimes don't tolerate political activity, no matter how benign, outside of the state. That's the way it goes, isn't it? Everything is political. Even conserving wildlife is political in a country like Iran. And they fell foul of that, unfortunately. You went on a hunger strike for a while. What were your demands? What did you want to achieve through the hunger strike? The first hunger strike I ever went on was maybe four months or so into my incarceration. And I had an extremely dangerous woman as my second cellmate. She was a spy. She had been put in my cell to try and get me to talk. There were voice recorders and cameras in the cell as, as well. Try and get me to confess or talk or give info out about whatever they wanted to know that I wasn't telling them in the interrogations. And she was very aggressive, very rude, um, very unclean. I knew that she was an informant from the beginning. She didn't want to be there. She'd been transferred out of a much more comfortable public prison ward to live with me in this tiny cell with horrific conditions. And 
she did not want to be there, but she'd done a deal with the devil and, and basically didn't have a choice. So she made my life a living hell and I wanted her out of my cell. And so I went on hunger strike. How effective was it? It, it worked. In the end, she was extracted from my cell. What ploy did you use with Kazi Zadeh, the man in charge of your case, to have her removed? What did you put to him? So Kazi Zadeh appeared back on the scene. The first time I saw him was actually in this meeting regarding my hunger strike. She had also been interrogated by him and was one of his successful recruits. I knew that she had been recruited because she used to be Nilofar's cellmate. And so Nilofar told me the story of this woman, Rulaya, it was her name, before she entered my cell. So you had your own intelligence network. <laughs> we had our own little network, definitely. And because he's only wouldn't have known that. Of no, course. he didn't know that. Right. He thought I wouldn't have a clue who she was. Right. But from the first day she was there, I knew it was the same woman Nilofar had told me about. And when I was on hunger strike and pulled in for this meeting with Kazi Zadeh, I got my own revenge back on on this woman, Rukaya, because she really put me through hell in, in the six weeks to two months I, I had to live with her. I claimed that Rukaya had actually told me, confided in me that she was a spy and she'd been recruited. And, you know, from Kazi Zadeh's perspective, how on earth would I know any of that if she herself hadn't told me? <laughs> of course, it was Nilufar who told me. And so he, he realised that the, the ruse had been exposed and he removed her from my cell and she probably got in trouble for that. <laughs> well, last one day you were brought into a meeting with the then Australian ambassador, Ian Biggs, ambassador Ian Biggs. What was he able to tell you or do for you? He wasn't unfortunately able to do much for me. It did mark a new phase in my imprisonment because I had been blocked from all consular assistance until that point. But once my case had been passed into the judicial system and I was going to be put on trial, they allowed the ambassador to come to an external meeting room just outside the gates of the 2A unit. And in this room, surrounded by revolutionary guardsmen with no privacy whatsoever, being recorded as well, I was able to meet the ambassador, Ian Biggs. We were not allowed to discuss my case, my reasons for being there, nothing. But it was a sort of a proof of life and he was able to ask about my health situation and tell me my family was worried and was thinking of me and that kind of thing. Now, he passed on the advice from the Australian government at the time, which was to say that to ask you to ask your family not to raise your plight in the media, to keep it under wraps. What was the thinking behind that? And did you buy it? At that very early stage, I thought I need the government to get me out I'd been in there for five months. I thought, oh, my God, it's not going to be much longer than this. I mean, I'm an innocent person. I haven't done anything wrong. They'll get me out soon. So I trusted them. I thought, okay, well, the fact that I've seen the ambassador now means that progress is underway. They'll never let me be put on trial. They know I'm an innocent woman. They'll, they'll fix something behind the scenes and I'll get out. So I sort of trusted their advice and trusted they knew what they were doing and thought, well, okay, let's stick with that then for now. Meanwhile, you were then put in a cell with your friends, Nilofar, and another woman, Sepide, who was also an environmental activist. How happy were you to be living with these amazing women? It was a wonderful day for me. We had this huge note-passing network set up at that point. So we kind of knew each other, but we hadn't really seen each other face-to-face before. And so to be able to hug them, to touch them, to see their face properly, to exchange ideas and exchange perspectives on things that had happened in the nine months, we kind of knew each other with this this note-passing. You said you, in the end, you the three of you decided to have something like, to keep yourself sane, a 15-year-old teenage slumber party in hell. Effectively, was That's what it was. It was a slumber party. We stayed up all night um, chatting and catching up and watching terrible Persian soap operas on the TV. And it was Ramadan, so everything flipped in prison. You didn't eat or drink during the daylight hours, so you were awake. You tried to sleep as much as you could during the day. You were awake half the night eating and drinking. So that's what we were doing. And it was super fun. <laughs> then there was your second meeting with Ambassador Biggs. And you received some advice, some good advice from a soulmate who said, don't sit there and be nice and go along with things. Make a stink, make, make some trouble. How did that second meeting with the ambassador go, Kylie? It was kind of fun as well, actually. Um, I, I sort of raised hell. Um, poor Ian Biggs, I really feel bad about the situation I put him in. And to his credit, he did stick 
by me and support and advocate for me. A cellmate of mine prior to being put in with Nilo and Sepide had some knowledge of how embassies operate. And she said to me, when they go into these meetings, you need to make them understand this is critically important that they act swiftly. You can't just tell them everything's fine and hunky-dory and you're okay just sitting there and they can wait another 10 months before getting you out. You need to raise hell and make, make them understand that you're not okay. So what did you do? So I s- flipped out on Ian Biggs. How? Well, and it was triggered by the fact that the Rev Guards in this meeting had set up a very huge uh, camera system to film our meeting. So obviously they were wanting to turn it into some propaganda clip or something. <laughs> and I objected to this and I said, you, I don't give you permission to film me, turn it off. And when they refused, I put my chador over my face and they said, well, you've got to take your chador off your face, otherwise we're cancelling the meeting. And I said, you're not cancelling the meeting until I say it's it's over. And then I, I launched myself at Ian Biggs and grabbed him around the legs and attached myself to him and refused to let go. And poor Ian Biggs didn't know how to react. And, um, you know, but to his credit, he didn't, he didn't move. He didn't push me away. He allowed himself to be held hostage by me. And I said, come on, let's continue the meeting, Mr Biggs. Let's tell me what you, you've come here to tell me. And I picked up his talking points, which were printed out on the, the coffee table in front of him, and I read through those and sort of gave him messages to take back to my family. All the while, the rev guards were going crazy and they brought in a female guard to try and pull me off him and I was resisting that and they were telling him he'll be banned from any future concert meetings ever and they're going to kick him out of the country <laughs> and they're going to expel the ambassador. Yeah. And, you know, so it was all hell broke loose, but... Um, I managed to convey that I wasn't okay and that this was a critical situation and that they need to do more and, and more fast. Then came the day, Kylie, where you planned and executed an escape from your yard. Tell me how you did that. So this was one of the best days in the whole time I spent in prison. So we had been relocated to a different exercise area for that half an hour we were able to get fresh air in the morning and the evening and it was downstairs in a courtyard next to the interrogation block they had put all these screens around to prevent men from ever the men's unit was next door too they didn't want the men prying and then seeing the women in in there and that's what they were concerned about this modesty but they didn't think about security you know the modesty was more important than the security and so I spotted a way of escaping from this temporary exercise area of scaling a wall climbing up onto an awning and from there onto the second-storey roof of the interrogation facility. Now, now, real escape was never an option. I mean, because even if you somehow got out of the jail complex, you're in the middle of Tehran, right? Exactly. So this is more of a, a protest gesture, in other words. It's a stunt. It was also something to do. It was very boring being in there day after day. And I had been one year in the facility at that point. I had demands as well. In exchange for me coming down, I wanted things to be done. So I planned it in advance. I took a pair of socks with me and a hijab with me because I knew if I didn't wear a hijab up there and they were negotiating with me, then that would be an issue for them. So I managed to put the socks over my hands because I had to scale this corrugated iron fence with spikes on the top. So I needed to hold on to the spikes. I needed something over my hands. Managed to get up on the roof of the facility and, and I disappeared from all the CCTV. So they didn't know where I was. And I was up there for a few hours and it was the most beautiful day blue sky, the trees were sort of lightly swaying in the breeze, the birds were wheeling overhead. I had this incredible view of North Tehran, this panorama of all these apartments and things near the prison. And I just felt free. No one was watching me. No one knew where I was. And I then started to make noise, disrupt the interrogations below me. I I found this huge stick that I was able to pound on the roof with and (laughs) screamed all sorts of things at them in English. I saw the men in in various exercise yards below me, so I was able to yell stuff down at them and they were quickly evacuated back into the prison so that they wouldn't see me up there. Um, So, yeah, I I was sort of causing chaos up there really and it took them a few hours and and a lot of negotiation to bring me down. You were always waiting for the day when your friends Nilfa and Sepida were going to be transferred to the public prison and eventually they were. What was it like to part with Nilfa on that day? It was one of the worst days that I spent in there. Me, Sepida and Yulufa, we were like sisters. We'd been on hunger strike together. We'd been through each other's court processes together. After receiving their convictions, Nilufa got 10 years, Sepida six years. I always knew they would be transferred to the public ward of Evan Prison out of the interrogation unit because that was what 
Iranian prisoners. That was the process they went through. And I was also supposed to be transferred before them, actually, because I received my conviction of 10 years before they did. But because I was a foreigner and because Qazi Zadeh still had designs on me as a potential spy recruit, they wanted me to stay in their unit and under the exclusive control of the Revolutionary Guard. So I was never transferred to the public ward of Evan, but I knew that my friends would be at some point. Sepita was transferred first and Nilofar about two weeks following her. So when I knew that Sepita had gone, it was only a matter of time before Nilu would also go. And it was a really bleak and, and upsetting day. I didn't know if I'd ever see her again. But it, it didn't. I, I encouraged her to leave because I knew it would be better for her. And the women's ward in Evan is freer. It's about 45 women living together in a shared space. So no more solitary confinement. They have access to food and ingredients for cooking. They have weekly visits with their family. It's better all around than the Revolutionary Guard unit. So I encouraged her to leave. But it was really heartbreaking for me um, to be alone there yet again without my friends. Like you said, you've been given a 10-year sentence after being convicted of the crime of being a spy. And then you were transferred to Karchak prison, a different kind of prison outside of Tehran. What was that prison like? And how was that different to the one you'd been in? Karchak is a notorious criminal prison. Very few political prisoners are held there. It's in the desert south of the capital, Tehran. Conditions are horrific. And it's very much a punishment for a political prisoner to be relocated to Karchak. Yeah, but you wrote that you were kind of happier there for a while. I was so happy there. Why? I had been in solitary confinement for, for seven months in the lead up. I was completely nuts by the time I went there. Suddenly, it didn't matter to me that these people were convicted murderers, armed robbers, fraudsters, drug addicts in Qachak. It didn't matter to me. I had other human beings around me. I had friendship. I had the ability to take part in the social life of the prison it was such an improvement on being in solitary. I really took pleasure in reminding my my captors and my interrogators because they would also come to Kajak to meet me from time to time that I was so much happier there than in solitary because they had intended to punish me and it backfired and I, you know I was I didn't want to leave. Then there was a new Australian ambassador there, Lyndall Sachs, who you really liked. You really liked her forthright manner. You were brought to meet her. Of all places, the headquarters of the Revolutionary Guards in Tehran. What do you remember of being taken in there to meet Ambassador Sachs? Oh, gosh, it was such an interesting building. Um, Opulent marble, gold everywhere. It was a strange sort of marriage between some sort of pre-revolution French Palace of Versailles style aesthetic combined with pictures of Ayatollah Khomeini and Khamenei and Qasem Soleimani, the assassinated head of the Quds force. It reminded me of an Arab dictator's boudoir or something. It was totally bizarre. Very Iranian style. I entered the room and there were sort of dates and baklava and sweets, shirini, on trays, which you know, I hadn't seen anything like this for the, the two years and three months in prison thus far. And there were well-dressed people in suits from the Rev Guards, all looking, you know, very formal. And Ambassador Sachs was there, as was Nick Warner, the envoy who'd been sent by Australia to negotiate my release. And I had been brought there to show Nick Warner, I guess, that I'm, you know, I'm here, I'm, I'm okay. Um, and this was, I think, one of his demands in the negotiation to actually see me face to face before the release. But then you'd learned how to speak and write Farsi. Yes. Did that reveal all kinds of things about the reasons for your incarceration once you were able to understand your jailers? The reasons for my incarceration, I understood from a few months in. And, you know, it was told to me by Nilofar and Hoda and, and Sipideh and some of the other prisoners, this is hostage diplomacy. Iran does this all the time. They've arrested dozens of foreigners. They always want something in exchange for them. They conduct a negotiation with that person's home country. They get either unfrozen assets and funds or they get a prisoner swap or something and you get released. All the Iranian prisoners knew about it and they said, you're a foreigner, you're not going to serve your 10 years. Australia will come and give them something and then you'll be released. So I kind of understood that well in advance of, of learning Farsi. But learning Farsi whilst in, in the 2A facility, I was able to strike up a friendship with some of the female prison guards. And slowly but surely I was able to build a sort of a picture, gather some intel, if you like, about what was going on and, and hear some rumours and gossip about the negotiations with my government too. 
So certainly having the FASI was really beneficial in that it provided extra insights into what was happening. What do you remember of your last day as a prisoner? I was told by Lyndall Sachs, the ambassador, that I would be removed from the cell at 9am and the transfer process would begin. I had been up half the night stressing and being anxious about it. I also didn't fully let myself believe it was going to happen. I didn't want to give myself false hope. Several other diplomatic deals had fallen through prior to this one. So I thought, okay, hold something back. You know, don't fully believe it's going to happen. You'll believe it when you see it. So I didn't get much sleep. 9am came and passed. I was still in my cell. I called up the Afsane Gahban, the duty officer of the unit, and he didn't know anything. And three hours, four hours passed, I was still there. So I started to think, okay, I'm not going to be released now. Something's gone wrong. There's been a spanner in the works. Then after midday, I was abruptly pulled from my cell and uh, I was taken to this administrative room. Um, So I went through this administrative procedure involving a very bizarre customer satisfaction survey where they ask me, what can we improve on and do better in the future? You know, how was your prison experience? Are you... what? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yep. I had to fill out a survey in Farsi. Was um, it like a smiley face gauge, like unhappy oh, face? It, it was a paper survey, right. like rank from one mm. to ten, your view on the prison food, you know. <laughs> it was totally bizarre. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I did that and put on my, my regular clothes, <laughs> got out of the prison uniform. <laughs> so it was. we were very delayed. We were very late. In the end, they delivered me to the ambassador's residence in Tehran and there was some sort of negotiation. So I was sitting in the car outside the residence for half an hour with blacked out windows. I couldn't see what was going on. I think they wanted the embassy to sign documents in Farsi without having them translated, without anything being apparent what they were signing. So, you know, this held things up. But finally, eventually, I was released into the care of the ambassador, then escorted to Mehrabad Airport. And then the plane took off and you were gone from Iran. And that left you feeling how? So I just sort of held part of myself back until that moment that we crossed into Qatari airspace and then I could finally breathe again for the first time in more than two years. I also had mixed feelings. I was really connected to Iran at that point. You know, I spoke the language. I had a lot of friends there. I developed a lot of friends in Qarchak prison. I was worried about the fate of of my sisters in in Avin and Qarchak. And I'd been ripped out of that after wholly sort of integrating myself into almost becoming an Iranian at that point as a survival strategy. Suddenly I was speaking English. Suddenly I was surrounded by Australian accents and it was really discombobulating. I just couldn't connect and and figure out what was going on. So I had mixed feelings about departing Iran. I really fell in love with the country and the people. So back in Australia, and you're safe and sound, there's a character in a John le Carre novel who's come out of prison and he finds for a while that he's got to stop at every doorway because he's got the old habits of prison, which is to not pass through a doorway until he's told he can. Did it take you a while to, you know, slough off some of those prison habits you'd had over two years and three months? Absolutely. You change your behaviour subconsciously when you're a prisoner, particularly because you know you're being watched 24-7. Two guards watching the CCTV cameras 24 hours a day, even when you're asleep, watching your every move. Even in Khachak prison, which was much freer and had far less security, the other prisoners are watching what I was doing and informing on me. You never get to behave naturally. You always have at the back of your mind... What angle is my body to the camera? Can they see my facial expression? And it becomes ingrained to the point that you're not even aware of it. So it took me quite a few months to unravel some of those behaviours. While you'd been in prison all that time, your marriage to your ex-husband had crumbled rather badly. And then sometime later you met the great Sammy Shah, Sammy who's been on the show a few times. What was your initial contact with Sammy like? I met Sammy on a dating app. and um, What was his dating avatar like? He was dressed as Colonel Gaddafi. 
And you thought, I like the cut of his jib. <laughs> I thought, this guy doesn't take himself too seriously. Um, it's intriguing. I was pretty jaded about the dating apps at that point, so it was refreshing to see someone who wasn't, you know, um, wasn't a gym pick or something. <laughs> Did you know who he was, a you know, comedian, broadcaster, writer, author, all those things? No, I didn't know who he was. And did I, he know who you were by the same token? No, he didn't know who I was either. <laughs> that first date must have been incredible then where you had to explain yourselves to each other. Oh, well, we didn't. I mean, I he didn't know who I was in the first date. I just told him I was an academic and he told me he was a comedian, but I'm not a particular aficionado of comedy, so I didn't wasn't aware of his comedy. Right, and he's he was an aficionado of Iranian political prisoners, and so no. so it took you a while. It must have been an amazing revelation to each other that you'd had these interesting lives. Yeah, he didn't use a fake name. I did, so I I could look him up and figure out who it was. But he thought my name was Kay in the first date, so he wasn't able to figure out anything about my background from Google. The memoirs of people like Nelson Mandela and. Václav Havel, the great Czech dissident playwright who went on to become the first democratic president of the Czech Republic. Both those men found that their time in prison as political prisoners educated them in the weakness of the system that had jailed them. What weaknesses did you learn about the Iranian system from being its prisoner all that time? I learned a lot about the Iranian system and particularly the Revolutionary Guard Corps, especially after learning Farsi. I came to understand that the ideological foundations of the Islamic Republic are crumbling even among its most fervent supporters, that a lot of these people now are opportunistic. They get some sort of benefit to themselves from joining up, from working within the Revolutionary Guard Corps system, but they're not fervent believers. Or they might be religious, say, but they're not whole scale signed up to the political ideology of the group. During the Iranian Revolution of 79, there were a lot of hardcore supporters of Ayatollah Khomeini. Today, even within the Revolutionary Guard Corps, a lot of these people are just there to be close to power, to get financial benefits, to benefit their families in some way. They don't really care about the ideology and that's profoundly dangerous to the regime longer term. Who are your friends who are still there in that prison? A number of friends who are still in prison. The two that I dedicated my book to, Nilufar and Sipideh, are still in the women's ward of Evin. I hope that they will be released soon. Sipideh will actually serve her sentence of six years in full by January next year, so I really hope that she will be released without harassment. Nilufar, unfortunately, has another four and a half years. What an amazing story, Carly. Thank you very much for sharing it. Thank you so much for having me. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au/conversations.